0: What I've got for you today is part two of a two-part series on the Barbary Wars. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you do so. If you're one of those brave folks that likes to start a book from the middle, don't worry about it. So if you want the whole scoop, start with episode seven. If not, on with the show. The Year, 1805, The Place, The Libyan Coast. As the United States Marines storm the shores of Tripoli, a crusade for American rights and liberties has somehow turned into a regime change war in Libya. Some things never change. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is Episode 8, The Shores of Tripoli, Part 2. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope this finds you well. I also hope you're ready for Part 2 of the two-part saga of the Barbary Wars, America's first overseas conflict, which will see the U.S. Navy continue to fight the pirates of North Africa for freedom of the seas, as long as it doesn't cost too much money. Hope you guys are ready for it. But since I'm not a complete jerk, I'm going to give you guys a quick recap, alright? Now, where were we? Oh yeah, oh yeah. In 1801, the United States went to war with the so-called Barbary State of Tripoli. The Barbary States of North Africa demanded tribute in exchange for free passage through the Mediterranean in a sort of international shakedown scheme that, to be honest, was a pretty lucrative and rational response to their economic situation. So after almost two decades of tribute payments, President Thomas Jefferson decided that this sucked and he decided to do something about it. The U.S. Navy was that something. Throughout 1801, 1802, and 1803, the Navy didn't accomplish much due to poor leadership and lack of resources. Then they got the tough, temperamental redhead Commodore Edward Preble as their new commander in the Mediterranean, and things started to look up. But... When the frigate USS Philadelphia ran aground outside Tripoli and was captured by Bashal Yusuf Karamanli's men, Preble organized a daring mission to destroy the captured ship. Led by the famously hunky young Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, Jr., the volunteer crew destroyed the Philadelphia in a brilliant raid that made Decatur a national hero and proved to be the turning point of America's fortunes in the Barbary Wars. And that is where we left off. If you don't remember any of that, you might want to listen to last week's episode, and I'll stop beating that drum. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. Next, all my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own, I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers, or sailors, or marines, or mercenaries, or whatever. So let's get into it. Our story today picks up from where we left off last week, with the United States in the midst of the Barbary Wars, and once again, we'll be talking about the price of peace. But today... We're going to ask a different question. When peace is paid for, when the bill comes due, who pays it? And no, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about people. Because as we end the story of the Barbary Wars today, we're going to see things go a bit differently than last time. Last time, the story was full of brave young heroes and daring operations and the brighter, more Hollywood-friendly side of America's first overseas conflict, the stuff Americans like to think about themselves. But today, we're moving into murkier waters. It's easy to get into a war, but it's not always so easy to get out again. And to get out of the Barbary Wars, the United States will have to resort to some shady, underhanded tactics that might not always meet the sniff test and it's entirely possible that we will abandon our allies just when they need us the most. What's the price of peace? Well, what about your soul? You willing to put that on the scale? Let's find out. Today, we'll be finishing the story of the Barbary Wars. We're going to talk about how Commodore Edward Preble and Captain Stephen Decatur Jr. continued their daring assaults on Tripoli. We're going to meet America's first Special Forces operative— William Eaton, and follow him on a covert operation to undertake a regime change in the Middle East, which I'm sure is a one-time thing that the Western powers will never ever try to do again, of course. We're going to see the First Barbary War end, and the Second Barbary War last about five days. Yes, we will finally see the United States Marines on the shores of Tripoli. And finally, I'll tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you Why? Make sure your pistol is still loaded, put on some sunscreen, and be sparing with your water because we're going on campaign. So, where are we off to? Well, we left off with the small American naval squadron blockading Tripoli. Angry redhead Commodore Edward Preble and one of his top subordinates, the famously hot Captain Stephen Decatur Jr., had just completed their daring raid to burn the captured USS Philadelphia. We left last week's episode with the U.S. Navy poised to open an active campaign against Tripoli's ruler, Bashaw Yusuf Karamanli, But we're not going to pick up there today. Instead, we're going to take a quick detour. We're going to go to the brand spanking new city of Washington, D.C. In contrast to last week's swashbuckling adventures, this is going to seem like a different movie altogether. Because our story begins with the President of the United States holding a classified briefing with a top counterinsurgency operative to discuss a Middle East regime change. By June 1804, President Thomas Jefferson was reaching the peak of his frustration with the war against Tripoli. By now the war had lasted almost three and a half years. The people might have celebrated the daring raid on the Philadelphia. Decatur might be the toast of Washington society, but the United States was no closer to putting this thing to an end. And get this, Jefferson was running the reelection campaign. Six weeks after Decatur's raid, Preble sailed into Tripoli Harbor to parlay with the Bashal, asking him how much peace would cost now. To Preble's shock, Yusuf now demanded $500,000 for peace and the return of the Philadelphia's crew. Far from intimidated by Decatur's raid, Yusuf was more determined than ever. From his point of view, from Yusuf's, it was only a matter of time before the United States got tired of the conflict and had to give in. And Jefferson was starting to come to the same conclusion. It cost the Young Republic an extraordinary amount of money to supply, support, and maintain these naval squadrons across the Atlantic. It would have been much cheaper just to pay what Yusuf had asked back in 1801. Heck, the war had caused the price of peace to go up, since the capture of the Philadelphia's crew necessitated a large ransom. Congress was getting antsy about the cost and duration of this undeclared war. Fighting the conflict at such a price was contrary to Jefferson's libertarian principles anyway. See, Americans have always been good at getting into conflicts, but we've historically had a lot of trouble getting out of them. Now, in the fourth year of the war against Tripoli, Jefferson was desperate to end the war cheaply and quickly. This pushed him into courses of action that, not so long ago, would have seemed contrary to American principles and beliefs. The price of peace was getting so high that Thomas Jefferson was putting his values on the line. Last week, we talked about how peace, war, national honor, and freedom of the seas had a cost attached to them. But what about your values? And who, ultimately, pays the price? In June 1804, President Jefferson had a closed-door meeting with someone who promised to deliver a quick end to the war with Tripoli. His name Was William Eaton. William Eaton had fought in the Revolutionary War, risen to the rank of captain in the young U.S. Army, and served under General Anthony Wayne in the Northwest Indian Wars. During those conflicts, Eaton had learned the art of guerrilla warfare and had undertaken several long range recon missions into Indian territories. He was appointed the U.S. Consul to the Barbary state of Tunis in 1798 and served there until 1803. So yeah, he's actually been around for quite a while. I haven't really mentioned him until today. But Eaton was a peripheral actor. He was on the sidelines for much of last week's story. Eaton was familiar with the Barbary States language and culture and understood how to work with Arabs. He was also a gifted diplomat, a talented improviser, and experienced in frontier and unconventional warfare. All this made him the closest thing the early United States had to a special forces operative. Closest thing, because there wasn't a such thing as special forces then. Bold, daring, and innovative, Eaton also had one big flaw. He provoked controversy with all the wrong people, and this would ultimately be his undoing. During his time as U.S. consul in Tunis, Eaton had gained the acquaintance and friendship of none other than Hamet Karamanli, the brother of the Bashaw of Tripoli. There had originally been three Karamanli brothers, Hassan, Hamet, and Yusuf. Hassan was the oldest and supposed to rule, but Yusuf had murdered him and forced Hamet into exile in 1795. This is how Yusuf seized power in the first place. Yusuf still held Hamet's wife and five children hostage, and Hamet had bounced around the Mediterranean before settling in Tunis and coming into contact with William Eaton. Now, Eaton presented his friend's case to the president. In return for American assistance in reclaiming his throne, Hamet promised that once he was in charge of Tripoli, the United States would have peace and an end to tributary payments altogether. Now, Jefferson understood what this meant. The United States would be covertly backing a regime change operation in a foreign land without congressional approval. His cabinet was divided, and the Navy disapproved of the whole scheme. But Jefferson believed that, if nothing else, this would put pressure on Yusuf Karamanli from a different direction. Maybe even if they couldn't replace Yusuf outright, this pressure would lower the price of peace. So when Commodore Samuel Barron sailed for the Barbary States in July 1804, he carried two special passengers. William Eaton had a special mission to fund and lead a regime-change war in Libya. The new U.S. consul to Tripoli, Tobias Lear, was ordered to try and get Yusuf to agree to a peace deal. If that deal didn't come through, Eaton was authorized to do whatever was necessary to get an agreement out of Tripoli, even if that meant replacing its leader. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, had officially committed his country a cloak-and-dagger regime-change scheme to finally bring an end to the First Barbary War. But even as all these plans were being laid, Commodore Edward Preble was still at war in the Mediterranean. Yusuf had rejected his most recent peace offers in June, and the Bashaw of Tripoli remained defiant in the face of both the Philadelphia's destruction and the continued blockade. And to be honest, you kind of have to give Yusuf props for his determination. The more research I've done on the war with Tripoli, the more respect I've gained for Yusuf Karamanli. He managed to lead his pirate kingdom through a very difficult crisis and kept his people united, motivated, and he stayed popular. Yes, yeah, sure, he might have been a greedy Corsair fighting against the United States, but from another angle, he was a talented and popular leader looking out for his people's best interests. And given how cutthroat politics always were in the Barbary States, the fact that Yusuf held on to power for so long implies that he was doing something right. But Commodore Preble was determined to bring the Bashal to the peace table, and he believed he could accomplish this by an out-and-out assault on Tripoli Harbor. Preble, unlike his predecessors, Richard Dale and Richard Morris, remember them, was committed to direct action against the enemy. But as I mentioned last week, it would be difficult to assault the harbor directly with the U.S. Navy's deep draft frigates and smaller sailing ships, or to land a small number of Marines and launch an assault against an army that heavily outnumbered them. These ships could run aground like the Philadelphia had done, and wouldn't that be embarrassing? Multiple American commanders had requested shallow draft gunboats that would allow them to maneuver in the shallow waters of Tripoli Harbor, but they hadn't arrived yet. American diplomats had tried and failed to purchase gunboats from France, but France's shipbuilders were hard at work preparing for Napoleon's planned invasion of England. So Preble finally ended up turning to the kingdom of Naples in southern Italy. Naples was one of the many small nations that had long been forced to pay tribute to the Barbary states, and when the Americans said, hey, can we borrow some gunboats because we're going to attack Tripoli? Naples was like, sure, go for it, go nuts. By May, Preble had six gunboats and two mortar boats, and he knew that he could finally take the war to Tripoli itself. Finally, by August 1804, Preble was ready to send his small, scraped-together fleet against the shores of Tripoli. His objective was not only to cow the Bashaw into lowering the price of peace, but to impress the other Barbary states, Algiers and Tunis, with American determination. The time for simple blockades was over. It was time to go in fighting. On August 3, 1804, Preble's squadron appeared off the coast of Tripoli. The Commodore himself stalked the deck of his 50-gun super frigate, the USS Constitution. The Constitution and the six American brigs and schooners would not dare venture too deep into the shallows, but the heavy flat-bottomed gunboats would. They had been divided into two squadrons of three ships each, one one under the command of Captain Stephen Decatur, Jr., and the other under the command of his close friend, Lieutenant Richard Summers. This flotilla would be opposed by Yusuf's fortifications of Tripoli, armed with 115 cannon on the stone walls and 25,000 militia who stood ready to repel the attack. Waiting in the harbor were 24 Tripolitan ships and gunboats led by Grand Admiral Murad Rice. Murad Rice was, in fact, Scottish. Yeah. Born Peter Lyle, Rice had been kidnapped by Algerian pirates on board an American ship. After converting to Islam, Lyle had adopted the name of a famous Algerian corsair from the 17th century, worked his way up to become Yusuf's admiral, and even married the Bashaw's daughter. I would kill to listen to his TED Talks about the secrets of success. If you work hard enough, you too can work your way up from slave... A pirate admiral. At about 2 30 p.m. on August 3rd, the attack began. The bigger U.S. Navy warships exploded with massive broadsides that went sailing into the defenses and buildings of Tripoli. The two mortar vessels began lobbing long, arcing projectiles that smashed into the city's walls and defenses. Militiamen ran to their posts on the fortifications of Tripoli and returned fire. Soon the Mediterranean was covered in smoke, only occasionally pierced by the summer sun. As the big guns boomed, the borrowed gunboats rowed into the shallows of Tripoli Harbor. Once again, Stephen Decatur took the lead, his tiny boat racing through a hail of smoke and lead. Each of the gunboats was commanded by a junior naval officer, including Lieutenant Joseph Bainbridge, whose older brother, Captain William Bainbridge of the Philadelphia, was still imprisoned inside the Bashaw's Castle and Lieutenant James Decatur, Stephen's younger brother. The six American gunboats were soon confronted by nine gunboats from Murad Rice's fleet, and in the shallows of Tripoli Harbor, a miniature naval battle began. The American tactics were very simple. Get to point-blank range with their enemy, fire a round of canister, then jump on board the enemy vessels and hack them to bits. It was a tactic ideally suited for the reckless, bold, crazy impulses of the young naval officers, but only a handful of the American ships managed to find targets. The first, of course, was Stephen Decatur's ship, because if anyone is going to find a fight, it's Stephen Decatur. He and his crew swarmed aboard a Tripolitan gunboat as they had the Philadelphia, hacking away with cutlasses and broadswords. Meanwhile, Stephen's brother James had been locked in combat with another enemy gunboat and had forced them to lower their flag and surrender. But someone should have told him that pretending to surrender was one of the Barbary Pirates' favorite tricks. As the younger Decatur was preparing to board and accept their surrender, the enemy captain suddenly raised his pistol and shot him in the head, severely wounding him. The enemy gunboat quickly made its escape. Stephen Decatur's gunboat came across James's vessel, and when he learned of his brother's mortal wound, he went searching for the man who had committed this cowardly act. As soon as he found the enemy gunboat, he and his crew swarmed aboard once again and went in fighting. Decatur jumped on board the enemy ship and sawed out the captain, a big honking mameluke wielding a pike with both hands. Now, there is no way of telling whether this was the dude who actually shot his brother or not, they don't even know if it was the same ship decatur certainly thought so and that would have made a better novel or something but most of the other officers said no steven decatur just went and found a random ship because he was mad either way the two men fought a duel to the death the tripolitan captain snapped decatur's sword with his pike and then tried to stab him in the abdomen decatur caught the blow with his right arm like he caught the pike's point in his right arm Ripped the pike away, then the two men were on the deck grappling UFC style. A Tripolitan sailor tried to chop Decatur's head off, but an American seaman put his head between his captain and the blade of the sword, saving Decatur's life. This sailor, whose identity is uncertain, uh, somehow survived, by the way. Finally, the enemy captain pinned Decatur to the deck, but just as he pulled out a knife, Decatur drew a hidden pistol and shot the man in the torso. With his death, the rest of the crew surrendered. While Stephen Decatur was doing his usual daytime soap opera John McClane stuff, Commodore Preble had gotten impatient with the long-range duel. He ordered the USS Constitution into Tripoli Harbor, a dangerous maneuver given what had happened to the Philadelphia, and began to plaster Tripoli with his big guns from close range. Shot and shell reigned around the Constitution as the super frigate weaved through the smoke and flames. Preble himself was nearly killed by a 32-pound cannonball that blew right past him, but the angry redhead continued to scream at his sailors from the deck. The Constitution silenced the shore batteries. Then its guns sank several enemy ships and even threw broadsides into the Bashal's castle. From inside the castle... Yusuf Karamanli had brought William Bainbridge up to watch the battle unfold, Return of the Jedi style, you know, with the Emperor making Luke watch the rebel fleet. And the captured American captain was a witness to the Pasha's behavior. Here is what Bainbridge said. At the commencement of the bombardment, the Pasha surveyed the squadron from the palace windows and affected to ridicule any attempt which might be made to injure either the batteries or the city. He promised the spectators on the terraces that rare sport would be enjoyed by observing the triumph of his boats over the Americans. In a few minutes, however, he became convinced of his error and precipitately retreated with a humble and aching heart to his bomb-proof chamber. At 4.30 p.m., Preble gave his ships the order to withdraw. The American squadron backed off, towing the gunboats and their captured prizes out of the harbor under the covering fire of the Constitution's 50 guns. But Preble was disappointed with the day's events. When the bloodstained, scorched Decatur returned to report that he had captured three Tripolitan gunboats, the Commodore's temper got the better of him. He yelled, Three, sir! Three! Where are the rest of them? This was, of course, extremely unfair. Decatur had done all he could. Preble later apologized for yelling at Decatur, especially considering the young captain's loss. James Decatur died that evening, and Stephen buried his brother at sea the next morning after sitting up with the body all night. But Preble was frustrated for other reasons, too. The assault just hadn't accomplished much. It had captured a couple of gunboats, sunk a couple of ships, and temporarily scared the Bashal. But Preble's attack had failed to seriously damage the city, and when Preble offered another negotiation for the Philadelphia's crew, he was turned down. Even the most furious assault by sea would not break the will of Yusuf Karamanli. Like I said, the guy's determination was kind of impressive. And things got worse for Edward Preble. On the night of August 7th, a message arrived for the American Commodore. It was good news, bad news time. The good news was that five more frigates were on the way to bring the war to a conclusion. The bad news was that they were commanded by Commodore Samuel Barron, who outranked Preble, so Preble was technically being fired. Jefferson had put Barron in charge near the beginning of the year, when Preble's only accomplishment so far had been losing the Philadelphia. Jefferson assumed that Preble was another dud of a commander, Preble had proved otherwise since then, but news traveled slow across the Atlantic, and by the time Jefferson learned of Preble's accomplishments, Barron was already on his way. The news of his impending removal only made Preble more determined to finish the war before his replacement arrived. He launched more attacks on August 7th, August 25th, and September 3rd. They all went the same way as the attack of August 3rd, just with less drama. The Constitution pounded the city, the gunboats fought each other in the harbor, and the close blockade snatched up one ship after another. These bombardments killed Tripolitan civilians, blasted showers of stone and dust on its inhabitants, and sank more ships. One cannonball smashing through the Bashal's castle almost killed William Bainbridge. Preble's repeated bombardments only stopped when weather intervened. But once again, they accomplished nothing. Preble had upped the ante as high as he could with his small force, but the price of peace had not gone down. The Peshaw was impressed with the Americans' courage and daring, having seen the Constitution engaging his batteries at nearly point-blank range and remarking on how brave Preble was, but he remained defiant. With Baron only days away, Preble decided to try one last plan. The Americans still had the captured Tripolitan ship Mastico, renamed the Intrepid. Remember that that ship? That's the ship that Decatur used to sneak into Tripoli Harbor and burn the Philadelphia. Now Preble thought they could pull off a different stunt. He ordered the Intrepid to be stocked full of gunpowder and turned into a fire ship. A select crew of volunteers would steer the Intrepid into the harbor, light the fuse, and row away as quickly as possible before the ship blew up, hopefully destroying part of the castle or the enemy's fleet. It was just as daring as Decatur's raid in the Philadelphia had been, and hopefully would be just as successful. Decatur's close friend, Lieutenant Richard Summers, volunteered to take command of the expedition, and his XO ended up being Lieutenant Henry Wadsworth. They selected 11 other eager volunteers to take the Intrepid into Tripoli Harbor. On the night of September 4th, Summers and his volunteers sailed into the darkness on board the fireship. Preble and his crew peered into the fog as the fireship vanished from view. They waited and waited and waited. Then all of a sudden, the Intrepid exploded prematurely. The massive stream of fire shot into the air as the vessel's fragments went flying in every direction. All 13 volunteers were killed instantly. To this day, no one knows what caused the premature explosion, whether it was a faulty fuse or enemy fire, or whether the crew blew up the ship to avoid capture, which is what Preble believed. Either way, the fireship attack was a dismal failure, and it was Preble's last military action Of the Barbary Wars, Preble might have felt like he hadn't accomplished much when he handed over command to Commodore Samuel Barron. Several days later, he had directed the raid to burn the Philadelphia, and he had made the bashaw feel the wrath of America. But he had not forced Tripoli to terms. He had not ended the war. But the commodore would be surprised when he returned to the United States and was greeted as a national hero, America's first successful naval commander. Preble was awarded a sword and a gold medal by Congress for his service. His fighting spirit had inspired the people at home, as well as the young officers who served under him. These officers of Preble's squadron would be known as Preble's boys, men like Stephen Decatur, David Porter, Isaac Hull, Thomas McDonough. They all contributed money for a small monument to honor their six fellow officers that had fallen during the assaults on Tripoli including Lieutenants Richard Summers, Henry Wadsworth, and James Decatur. That monument now stands at the U.S. Naval Academy, behind the Academy's museum in Preble Hall, named after Commodore Edward Preble. Henry Wadsworth's sister, Zilpa, ended up naming her newborn son after her heroic brother, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow would become one of America's greatest poets. Proving that it's a small world after all, Zilpa's next-door neighbor was the retired Edward Preble, who passed away in 1807, only three years after his fighting squadron had brought the war home to the Bashal of Tripoli. With Edward Preble out of the picture, the war against Tripoli was now in the hands of three men, all of whom had different ideas about how to bring this thing to an end. President Jefferson wanted the war to be over, but whose plan would succeed in bringing that about? First, of course, there was William Eaton. Eaton had presidential approval and a commission from the Navy Secretary to carry out his favorite plan. Remember? Remember? use American money and naval support to overthrow Yusuf Karamanli and replace him with his brother Hamet. This plan, a regime change operation against a sovereign state, was unprecedented in early America's foreign relations. Everyone knew it, including Secretary of State James Madison. Here's what he said. Although it does not accord with the general sentiments or views of the United States, to intermeddle in the domestic contests of other countries. It cannot be unfair, in the prosecution of a just war, or the accomplishment of a reasonable peace, to turn to their advantage the enmity and pretensions of others against a common foe. Thomas Jefferson, for a man who believed in limited government, had gone a long way towards expanding presidential powers. He had ordered military action against Tripoli in 1801, despite, you know, lack of congressional approval or a declaration of war. Now he had ordered a covert operation to overthrow a foreign leader. In effect, like I've said, to launch a regime change. In Jefferson's mind, this was all okay, because it was a just and righteous war. Sure, buddy, like I said last week, I'm sure that no other president would ever dare abuse this power in the future, That would be crazy. But the other two men were not on board with Eaton's agenda. Commodore Samuel Barron believed in continuing the war as Preble had fought it. They now had three of the six super frigates, President, Congress, and Constellation, which gave them a much more powerful squadron than Preble had had. Instead of unconventional regime change, Barron argued for a conventional, direct assault on the enemy. Finally, there was Tobias Lear, who didn't favor regime change or direct attack. Lear's appointment as diplomat to the Barbary States was due to his close and sketchy associations with Jefferson. His life had been marred by scandal, and he hoped to make his name by ending the Barbary War. Lear was eager to negotiate a peace at any price, both for his own reputation's sake and under pressure from Jefferson to end this expensive, frustrating war. Everyone was under pressure from the third president to end the war as soon and as cheaply as possible. Barron and Lear were both skeptical of Eaton's plan. Barron because he believed the Barbary War should be a conventional Navy operation and he was interested in looking out for his service. And Lear because Eaton's success would make his own efforts irrelevant. They were also concerned about Hamet, the man who would be king, and his less-than-amazing reputation. They asked if this dude was even worth backing. Barron was under orders from Jefferson to support Eaton's expedition, and he did, but only the bare minimum. And it got worse. Almost days after Barron took over command from Preble, he was knocked on his butt by a severe liver infection. Barron moved ashore to Syracuse for treatment, and he became so weak that by January 1805, his secretary had to write his letters for him. While he delegated day-to-day operations to his second-in-command, Captain John Rogers, Barron inexplicably refused to give up command entirely. And the sicker he got, the more he fell under the influence of Tobias Lear. Lear would gradually turn Barron completely against Eaton's plan, persuaded Barron not even to send Eaton any resources, and told him not to undertake any aggressive actions that would undermine Lear's own diplomatic efforts. So Eaton and Barron might have disagreed over how to win the war, but Lear was doing his best to ensure that peace came about in his name before America could win the war. A decisive United States victory would ruin all his plans. Lear's agenda wouldn't just be William Eaton's undoing. It would also be his own. As Commodore Barron's liver was giving him the time of his life, his squadron sat in blockade around Tripoli, not letting any ships through, but not doing much else. As Lear tried to persuade the Bashal to give up through diplomacy, Eaton finished his preparations for a ground campaign in Libya. But by now it was a mission that no one really believed in, But him. The critical ingredient for Eaton's mission, of course, was Hamet Karamanli, and Hamet was not currently in the neighborhood. In 1803, Yusuf had offered his older brother the option of returning to Libya. Eaton tried to persuade Hamet that he couldn't trust Yusuf, but Hamet, being hopeful or stupid, probably both, had gone anyway. But Hamet was forced into exile once again and fled to Egypt. So Eaton's first order of business would be tracking down the man he was going to try to make king of Libya. Eaton arrived in Alexandria, Egypt, on November 25, 1804, aboard Lieutenant Isaac Hull's brig, the USS Argus. When the Argus weighed anchor in Alexandria, Eaton went with Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon, the commander of the Argus's marines, and a few other men to go into Egypt and try to find Hamet it wasn't easy. Egypt was in turmoil. Napoleon's invasion in 1798 had overthrown the old Mameluke power structure, and now the country was in a virtual state of civil war, with multiple factions fighting and marauding across the landscape. When Eaton finally got in touch with Hamet, the two men agreed to rendezvous near Alexandria and begin to plan their invasion. The two men were good friends. But they could not have been more different. Eaton was bold, flexible, level headed, and decisive. 41 years old, tall, and blue eyed, he was convinced that the mission would be a success, and just knew that Hamet would be accepted by the North African tribesmen and the people of Tripoli when he invaded. Sadly, he had more confidence in Hamet than Hamet had in himself. The older Karamanli brother was nervous and spineless. A black hole of charisma who surrounded himself with yes-men. According to the people of Tripoli, he hadn't been worth much during his short time as Bashaw. And Hamet, to be honest, probably didn't really believe in this whole plan. He was just a guy who wanted his family back and, well, to not die. And it wasn't really Hamet's fault. He wasn't built to rule, and he sort of knew it. But Eaton told him there was a chance, and Hamet believed him he put all his faith in this persuasive, charming American operative and gambled his future and the future of his family on the promises of the United States government. That would not end up being the best decision. Eaton and Hamet agreed that they should attack over land, since Isaac Hull's little ship would not be big enough to carry a large land force. With that decided, the second problem was us and what army? Barron and Lear had refused Eaton's request for 100 U.S. Marines to help them out. And invading Libya with Eaton, Hamet, and friends was just suicide with extra steps. As Hamet recruited local Arab chiefs, Eaton and Lieutenant O'Bannon zipped back to Alexandria and started looking for mercenaries. Eaton's big problem in this endeavor would be money. Jefferson and Madison had only authorized a certain amount for the project. And as always, the new United States was constantly on the verge of bankruptcy. Eaton had dumped a bunch of his own personal funds into the mission, with the hope that he would be reimbursed later. Someone should have told him, don't commingle federal and personal funds, because the federal government is not usually in the habit of returning your money, even in 1804. So when it came to mercenaries, Eaton and O'Bannon would get what they paid for. Yeah, so this is the part in the movie where we'd meet the rogues' gallery of people that Eaton signed up for the mission. Think something like, I don't know, Ocean's Eleven or Suicide Squad. What Eaton and Hamet ended up putting together was one of the most random grab bags of people that have ever served under an American commander. About 400 Arab raiders, recruited by Hamet and led by a couple of sheikhs, made up most of the army. But Eaton and O'Bannon scrounged up a band of 38 Greek and Egyptian mercenaries, a Turkish captain with 25 uh, unemployed artillerymen, some Italians, some Frenchmen, two Englishmen, basically all the random dudes in Alexandria who were bored and desperate enough to join Eaton's mission. But you gotta hear about this one guy. Johann Eugene Leitenstorfer was born in Austria, dropped out of seminary got married joined the austrian army deserted and joined napoleon's army got thrown in prison escaped prison became a traveling peddler rejoined the french army invaded egypt with napoleon deserted again opened a coffee shop in alexandria married a different woman while still married to his first wife became a christian monk for like three months became a street magician enlisted in the ottoman army converted to islam performed DIY circumcision with a knife, became a traveling Islamic faith healer, healed the governor of Trebizond with his magic faith healing powers, escorted a Scottish lord to Arabia and Ethiopia, and then ended up hanging out in Egypt, where he was hired by William Eaton to help invade Tripoli. With a resume like that, dude, you are so freaking hired. So out of the 500 assorted weirdos that Eaton and Hammett would lead into the desert, there were only 10 Americans. Eaton himself, a naval officer from the Argus, and Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon with seven other U.S. Marines. Now I gotta say, imagine being these guys, man. <laughs> you join the Marines to see the world, meet some ladies, and of course those uniforms are awesome, and then you're suddenly invading the Middle East. Wait, that sounds a little too familiar. Either way... Imagine Private Joe Schmo rubbing shoulders with a bunch of Bedouins on the one hand, and you know Johann Eugene Leitensdorfer on the other. I bet they wondered just what the heck they'd gotten themselves into. With the army finally assembled, Eaton and Hamet laid out a formal agreement on February 23, 1805. By this agreement, Eaton promised Hamet guns and ships to put him back on the throne of Tripoli. In exchange. Hamet promised to release the Philadelphia captives, repay the U.S. government for their support, and end the tribute system. He also appointed Eton as the commanding general of the expedition. Finally, a secret clause promised to turn Yusuf over to the Americans when the war was over. Their first target would be the Tripolitan port city of Derna, which in 1805 was the second largest city in Libya. Reaching Derna would necessitate crossing 500 miles of the vast western desert between Libya and Egypt, which is a tall order for any military force. This is the same western desert where Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps would fight the British during the Second World War, just for reference. They would cross over the battlefield of El Amin. Some of the German and British officers would literally use Eaton's account for reference in their campaigns. Lieutenant Isaac Hull and his Argus and two other Navy ships would rendezvous with Eaton and Hamet at the Bay of Bamba before the army attacked Derna. The plan was that when Hamet took Derna, he could rally the local tribes and loyal citizens to his cause, then continue west to overthrow his brother Yusuf, take Tripoli, liberate his family and the Philadelphia's crew, and end the war. It was an ambitious plan, but Eaton was confident that it could succeed. So wait... Real quick, what else was going on in 1805, the year that William Eaton led this ragtag army across the North African desert? Well, let's see. Thomas Jefferson is sworn in for his second term as president four days before Eaton starts out on his mission. Napoleon declares himself emperor of France a couple of months ago, and later this year, Lord Nelson will win his famous naval victory at the Battle of Trafalgar. Beethoven conducts the premiere of his Third Symphony in Vienna this year, and Lewis and Clark are making their way across the Louisiana Territory, all in 1805. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot going on. Hope that helps. On March 8, 1805, Eaton's expedition left Alexandria to begin its long march across the western desert. He led the way in a gaudy general's uniform that he had had made for the occasion, followed by the marines and their spiffy outfits, followed by a renaissance fair of random mercenaries and Arabs. The army trekked along the Mediterranean coast, through the heat of the North African desert. They weren't exactly walking across sand dunes, but it was still a bleak, dry landscape that seemed to stretch on for miles. Sand blew around them, the nights were deathly cold, and their equipment chafed on their backs. Soon the Americans and Europeans were beaten down by the unusual temperatures and harsh conditions, except for Eaton, who seemed to move forward like a man possessed. He soon covered up his flashy uniform with Arab clothing, truly giving him the appearance of an American predecessor to the famous Lawrence of Arabia. But Eaton would face many challenges on the 52-day journey to Derna, and they wouldn't come from the climate. The vast majority of this little 500-man army was composed of Arab mercenaries and support personnel, and only two days into the trip they started demanding their pay in advance. And Eaton did not have a lot of money to throw around, since Baron and Lear had withheld any further cash advances before the expedition started. This would be a recurring issue. The Arab mercenaries proved to be extremely fickle and difficult to control, which didn't just threaten to derail the expedition, It would often place the Americans and the European mercenaries in mortal danger. Mutiny became a constant threat during the long trek across the desert. Eaton had to deal with daily emergencies, including theft, attempted theft, strike, desertion, demands for more money, and clashes between Christian and Muslim soldiers. When the camel drivers revealed that Hamet had only paid them half what he had promised, Eaton spent the last of his cash to persuade them to go a few more days. Things got only more tense when food and water began to run short, and the Marines even ran out of crayons. That was a joke. About halfway to Derna, on March 26th, word reached the expedition that Yusuf knew they were coming. He had sent reinforcements, and those troops were on their way to Derna. This caused Hamet to lose heart, and he and the other Arab chiefs announced that they were abandoning the expedition. While Eaton managed to talk his friend into continuing the march, I think this is a major revelation. It's pretty obvious to me that, left to his own devices, Hamet never would have had the guts to try this scheme. Only Eaton's encouragement, Eaton's influence, and finally, Eaton's browbeating kept him going. From where I'm sitting, Eaton wanted Hamet to be Bashal more than Hamet did. I'm not sure if Eaton was a supportive friend, a toxic friend, or some combo of both. At one point, one of the sheikhs left with his entire contention, deciding that this whole thing wasn't worth it, and Hamet rode off after him. A few days later, though, Hamet returned with the sheikh and his men in tow, which is pretty much the only time in the whole war he ever displayed an ounce of backbone. At night, as the ragtag army pushed west, Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon found a way to dispel the chill desert night and boost their fragile morale. The 29-year-old O'Bannon was from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, and he was of Irish descent. He had brought his fiddle on the journey, and in the desert night of North Africa, the strains of hogs in the cornfield echoed across the rocky wastes. Probably the first time that American mountain music has ever been played in the North African desert, but if you know of an earlier time, drop me an email. I'm sure that bluegrass has been played in weirder places, too. On April 8th, one of the periodic emergencies came up once again. The sheikhs refused to move on until they received confirmation that Lieutenant Hull was waiting for them in the Bay of Bamba, six days away. Hamet once again opened his back and removed his backbone, and declared that he was going to turn back. Eaton had to set up the Marines and Western mercenaries with loaded muskets in front of the food supply and confront the angry Arabs for almost an hour before tensions cooled down, the expedition could get on with it. Those poor marine privates were probably sleeping back to back by this point. Despite all these trials and near disasters, the invasion force finally staggered into the Bay of Bomba on April 15, 1804. Soon enough, Hull's USS Argus appeared on the horizon, accompanied by two other American ships, the USS Hornet and the USS Nautilus, the latter commanded by yet another future War of 1812 hero, Oliver Hazard Perry. Lieutenant Hull had food and supplies for the now 600 to 700 men of Eaton's grab bag army, because they had picked up more Arab tribes on the way, and Derna was only 60 miles from their landing site. This was the last stage of the journey, and everyone knew there was a fight waiting for them at the end of it. As Eaton and his army moved towards Derna, they learned that its governor, Mustafa Bey, was preparing to receive them. Yusuf's reinforcements were days away, so Eaton realized that he had to attack quickly before they could arrive. After overcoming one last mutiny by the Arab sheikhs, the small army ascended the heights east of the city on April 26, 1805. The time had come. Captain-slash-General Eaton was about to lead the young United States' first land battle on a foreign shore. Now, Mustafa Bey had been semi prepared for a naval assault, but he had not been prepared for a horde of Arabs, Marines, and random European mercenaries to come boiling out of the desert like the world's worst costume party. He still had a number of small fortresses and castles surrounding the town, manned by about 800 fighting men, which outnumbered Eaton's army, and those odds would get much higher when Yusuf's 1,200 reinforcements arrived. Eaton sent a message demanding the Bey's surrender, to which Mustafa only replied, My head or yours. Which, to be honest, is a pretty awesome response. Of course, there are two ways to react when you face a larger army. There was the live today, fight tomorrow approach. Hamet preferred this approach, and he was, once again, almost ready to bug out. He had to be talked back down by Eaton. Then there was the screw you method, which Eaton preferred, and his approach won. Once again, Eaton had to persuade Hamet to actually go through with this plan. Like, dude, I'm doing this for you. I'm helping you whether you like it or not. Eaton spent the night on the Argus with Isaac Hull, planning their combined land-naval attack. As he left the ship on the morning of April 27, 1805, Eaton left a note divvying out all his private possessions just in case he didn't make it. The Battle of Derna began at 1.30 p.m. on April 27th. Shooting broke out around the outskirts of the town. As Eaton's ragtag army distracted the garrison, Hull led the three American ships into the harbor. He placed them at almost point-blank range and began to blast away at the outer forts defending the city. The defenders returned fire and the spring morning on the Libyan coast was ablaze with gunsmoke, sand, and the splashes of cannonballs. Hamet led his cavalry around to seize the forts on the western side of town, while Eaton and his foot soldiers prepared to attack the eastern side. But as they advanced on Derna, musket and cannon fire from the fortresses forced them to take cover. Soon they were pinned down, and their already fragile morale was in danger of cracking. If something didn't happen soon, the battle might already be lost. Eaton and Lieutenant O'Bannon stepped forward to lead their men in an assault. Only 60 men followed them, mostly the Marines and the European mercenaries, but that was enough to cross the open desert in the face of heavy fire and break into the walled city. Even though they were heavily outnumbered, the shock, force, and audacity of the attack surprised the defenders and forced them to fall back. The little assault force pushed inside the walls of the desert town, firing their muskets and hacking away with sword and bayonet. The Marines and mercenaries from a dozen different countries piled into the streets of Derna. As Eaton ran forward, waving his sword, he was hit by a gunshot to the wrist. Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon took over and led his small party of very out-of-place Marines and one Navy officer into and over the enemy's batteries. As the Tripolitan defenders scattered, the Marines lowered the enemy flag. At 3 o'clock p.m. on April 27th, 1805, the stars and stripes were raised for the first time over a foreign land. The United States Marines had come to the shores of Tripoli. Eaton's team took the captured cannon and began to fire on the other enemy fortresses, just as Hummett's cavalry came barreling in from the west. Caught between the hammer and the anvil, Mustafa Bey surrendered by 4 o'clock p.m. The Battle of Derna, America's first overseas land battle, had taken three hours. Eaton's little army had lost two killed, Marine Privates John Witten and Edward Seward, and a dozen wounded. For this small price, the second largest city in the domain of Tripoli was theirs. It was the first real American victory of the Barbary War, even if most of the troops hadn't been American at all. And when Yusuf Karamanli learned of Derna's fall, the price of peace would change once again. But who ended up paying it was another story. Sometimes, the only thing more dangerous than being America's enemy is being its friend. The capture of Derna had changed the course of the war. Yusuf Karamanli had been aware of Eaton and Hamet's expedition, and the more progress they made, the more concerned Yusuf became. The news of Derna's capture threw the Bashal's court into complete disorder, and the price of peace started to fall. It started to fall a lot. See, Yusuf Karamanli was finally starting to feel the pressure. He had defied the United States for four long years, and Tripoli had remained united behind him. Yusuf was, well, a courageous and popular leader. There were reasons he was in charge, and Hamet wasn't. But Tripoli was starting to feel the effects of war. The city had suffered physically from the bombardment and economically from the blockade. The harvest of 1804 had been a disaster, and food shortages were becoming an issue. Finally, even more than the blockades and bombardments, American support of Hamid was a direct and mortal threat to Yusuf's regime. Maybe with this card on the table, it was finally, finally time to figure out what the Americans were willing to pay for peace. The market had spoken. Peace as a commodity was suddenly up for sale. And no one was happier to hear this than Tobias Lear. While Eaton had been off playing Lawrence of Arabia down in North Africa, Lear had been at work trying to negotiate a peace. Like I said before, Lear wanted the end of the First Barbary War to be a story starring Tobias Lear, not Samuel Barron or William Eaton. He was prepared for peace at any price, and he was worried that some complication, like a successful naval attack or a harebrained regime change scheme, might disrupt his agenda. But even if he'd opposed Eaton's expedition from the beginning and done all he could to help it fail, he was not above using its success as leverage in his plan for peace. On the other hand, Lear was determined that Eaton should go no farther, lest he disrupt the peace negotiations that Lear was convinced would put his name in the history books. After all, Eaton wasn't just planning to hold Derna. If he got the chance, he planned to take his army towards Tripoli itself. Baron, Commodore Baron, probably under Lear's influence, wrote a letter to Eaton. Here's some of what this letter said. You must be sensible, sir, that in giving their sanction to a cooperation with the exiled Bashal, the government did not contemplate the measure as leading, necessarily and absolutely, to a reinstatement of that prince in his rights on the Regency of Tripoli. I repeat, we are only favoring him as the instrument to an attainment and not in itself as an object. So the message was pretty clear. The United States was only using Hamid as leverage against Yusuf. When they had gotten what they wanted from him, they were fully prepared to toss him aside and move on. At this point, I think, the only one who really believed in this mission was Eaton. Hammet, after all, had tried to turn back multiple times, and still seems kind of squirrely about the whole thing. Still, though, Barron and Lear were basically proposing to cut Hamlet loose after propping him up, placing him in harm's way, and promising him American support to free his family and restore his throne. Eaton was a man of principle, and he strongly objected to any peace that left Hamlet out in the cold. But Eaton wasn't negotiating. Tobias Lear was. Tobias Lear had his leverage, he had his agenda, and no one was going to turn him away from it. As soon as the news of Derna's fall reached the Americans, negotiations began. As the haggling went on, Eaton's Marines and mercenaries clung on in the coastal city, and they repulsed multiple assaults by Yusuf's reinforcements. There was an active, constant battle going on at Derna. But on June 1st, 1805, Lear and Yusuf settled on their deal for peace: sixty thousand dollars ransom for the crew of the Philadelphia along with peace at no additional price whatsoever. The Americans would evacuate Derna, Hamet would leave Tripolitan territory, Yusuf would free Hamet's family, and Tripoli would never harass American shipping in the Mediterranean again, and there would be no tribute. The price of peace had fallen to zero dollars. The First Barbary War was over. Thanks to Eaton's expedition and Lear's timely negotiations, America had won the First Barbary War and had proven that their military power could extend beyond the coasts of the United States. The Navy and Marine Corps had gone overseas to defend American interests and had raised the United States flag on the shores of Tripoli. Finally, and for all time, the United States had taken her place among the community of nations. But the price of peace wasn't just measured in money. The price included abandoning America's allies. On June 4th, a furious William Eaton received word of the peace treaty. He had to break the news to Hament, who was bitter but seemed to take it in stride. It was just one more disappointment in a long history of disappointments. Since Barron and Lear had cut them off from outside assistance, Eaton had no choice but to abandon the hard-won prize of Derna to Yusuf's forces. On June 12th, Eaton, Hamet, the American forces, and their European mercenaries withdrew in the darkness overnight from Derna. As the last boats pulled away from the shores of Tripoli, Eaton watched the people of Derna and the Arabs who had fought beside them scream curses at the faithless Americans. When it came to the United States, the price of peace had been very low. But when it came to Hamet and his wife and children, the price of peace had been high indeed. He was a tool in a larger game that he had barely understood. Hamid had never been a great leader, an inspiring figure, or a capable commander. But he had trusted American promises, and those promises had been broken. Hamet Karamanli was the first overseas ally that American diplomacy had left exposed, twisting in the wind, when the final peace was made. He would not be the last. The United States and Tripoli got to work, making the peace stick. Of the 306 original American captives from the Philadelphia, 297 walked out of Tripoli after 19 months of captivity. Four had died, and five had converted to Islam in the interim. But the other hostages proved to be a sticking point. Yusuf proved extremely reluctant to release Hamet's family, and only after the threat of renewed war did he finally free them in 1807, two years after the treaty had been signed. With Barron finally too sick to command the American Mediterranean Squadron, command passed to Captain John Rogers. When Tunis started acting up soon after Tripoli signed the peace treaty, Rogers rolled into Tunis Harbor in July 1804 and asked the Tunisian Bay to say that again to his face. Things cooled down, a new treaty was signed, and now Tunis had also been educated on the new price of peace. Finally, the Barbary rulers were convinced that America meant business. It had only taken four years of war with Tripoli, including the land invasion, that altogether had cost $3.6 million, which, I'll remind you, was way higher than Yusuf had ever asked America for but the United States had finally earned some street cred with the wider world. But there would be fallout from the treaty back in the United States. When Eaton came home, he was hailed as a great conqueror, the modern-day Alexander. But he immediately shot off a lot of this goodwill by loudly criticizing the treaty to anyone who would listen. Eaton remained convinced that in another two to three months, His army, combined with John Rogers' navy, could have taken Tripoli, freed the captives by force, and replaced Yusuf with Hamet. America could have won a total victory rather than a negotiated peace. Eaton believed, like Douglas MacArthur a century and a half later, that in war there was no substitute for victory. Congressional investigations raked Tobias Lear over the coals. In their 472-page report of April 1806, pretty much ruined his reputation, though he did keep his job. Congress also finally awarded Homet's family a small pension. But Eaton's takedown of Lear also sank any chance he had of official reward or recognition from the Jefferson administration. In contrast to Decatur and Preble, the other heroes of the war, Eaton received no swords, no medals, or even real recognition. William Eaton became unwelcome in Washington, got involved in some unsavory incidents with Aaron Burr, of all people, and began to drink like it was going out of style. America's first special forces operative passed away in disgrace and obscurity in 1811. With the United States finally at peace with Tripoli, the First Barbary War was over, and the United States continued to maintain a small squadron of ships in the Mediterranean just to keep an eye on the Barbary States. But encounters between American and British ships over the issue of impressment caused the United States to prepare for a possible rematch with the mother country. There were new issues to deal with. The result was that in 1807, Thomas Jefferson withdrew all American ships from the Mediterranean after six years of American naval presence in that sea. Pretty much as soon as they were gone, the sharks were in the water again. In November 1807, Algerian pirates captured two American merchant ships, and Tobias Lear had no choice but to fork over the ransom. Algiers, unlike Tunis and Tripoli, remained unbowed. Its time would come, but not for eight years. The United States was about to be a little busy. Royal Navy level busy. In June 1812, the United States and Great Britain went to war in what's called the War of 1812, for obvious reasons. It was in this war that all the young officers who had fought on the shores of Tripoli, Preble's boys, finally came into their own. Ships commanded by men like David Porter, James Lawrence, Isaac Hull, Charles Stewart, Thomas McDonough, and especially Stephen Decatur Jr., gave the Royal Navy's frigates all they could handle for the first year of the conflict. The brightest performance of all belonged to the unluckiest captain in the American Navy. William Bainbridge had surrendered his ship to the French in the Quasi-War, been forced to carry tribute by the day of Algiers, run the Philadelphia aground outside of Tripoli, and been held captive for 19 months. But he pulled off one of the most astonishing career revivals in American military history. In command of the USS Constitution, now known as Old Ironsides, Bainbridge defeated the HMS Java in a famous one-on-one battle off the coast of Brazil. Dude could not have bounced back harder if he had been bungee jumping. When the Royal Navy got its crap together, though, they enforced a rigid blockade of the American coast, and those small naval battles of the first year of the War of 1812 did not continue for the rest of the war. But the United States Navy now had an experienced, battle-hardened set of captains and high-quality ships on hand, and Algiers would find this out the hard way in the second and final Barbary War. You might be looking at that clock right now and thinking, James, you just spent most of two episodes talking about the first Barbary War. How are you going to squeeze the second Barbary War in this late in the game? Have faith, because I'll tell you, there's not that much to squeeze. During the War of 1812, Algiers openly repudiated its old treaty with the United States, and they had been seizing ships whenever they saw fit. They had been aided and abetted by Great Britain, and as long as the Royal Navy was tying the American fleet down, Algerian ships were pretty much running wild. But when the war ended on December 24, 1814, the United States could devote its undivided attention to the Barbary problem. President James Madison was determined to end the Barbary menace once and for all. At his request, Congress officially declared war on Algiers on March 2, 1815, starting The Second Barbary War. Remember, Algiers is the one who started this whole story. They were the most powerful and most dangerous of the Barbary states. They were the first ones to seize American sailors and hold them for ransom, and it took ten years to get those guys out of prison. America's tribute to Algiers had been almost a fifth of the federal budget. Yusuf Karamanli only started the First Barbary War because he wasn't getting paid as much as Algiers. Algiers had been Britain's leg breaker in the Mediterranean. Remember that saying? If Algiers didn't exist, Britain would have had to invent them. They were the OG Barbary state, and now, 30 years later, the United States decided it was time to do what they couldn't do in 1785. On June 15, 1815, an American squadron entered the Mediterranean for the first time in eight years. The 10 U.S. Navy ships were commanded by Commodore Stephen Decatur Jr. aboard the brand-new 44-gun frigate USS Guerriere. If there was a fight to be found, Stephen Decatur was going to find it. He did just that on June 17th, when his squadron sighted the 46-gun Mashuda, the flagship of the Algerian Navy. The Mashuda tried to escape, you know, one ship against ten, uh-oh, we're running. But a cannonball from Guerriere cut the Mashuda's captain in half, and two more massive broadsides forced the crew to surrender. The Americans captured another ship on June 19th. So basically, Stephen Decatur rolls into the Mediterranean and pimp slaps the Algerian fleet within his first week on the job. By June 28th, Decatur's fleet was parked in the harbor of Algiers, and the day was staring down the barrels of his guns. Decatur made it clear to the day that he was willing to negotiate but that his ships would destroy any vessel attempting to leave the harbor. When the Algerian ruler asked what his terms would be, Decatur laid them out. No tribute. All captives released. $10,000 to be paid by Algiers to the United States in compensation for American property. These were the terms. If the Day didn't like them, he was free to try and do something about it. That was the price of peace. Would the Day pay it? He would. On June 30th, two days after Decatur's ships had arrived, the day of Algiers signed the treaty. The Second Barbary War was over. Just like that. After 30 years of being forced to pay tribute, 30 years of having to cater to the whims of Barbary pirates, the United States Navy were the ones setting the price of peace. It showed just how far the United States had come in a short time. Decatur and his squadron continued on their grand tour of the Barbary Coast, stopping in at Tunis on July 26th and Tripoli on July 29th just to remind everyone how things stood. Satisfied, Decatur turned around and left the Mediterranean, but on the way out, he ran into a friend. None other than Commodore William Bainbridge, commanding a second American squadron, had just arrived from Boston. He had been sent just in case Decatur needed help, but Decatur didn't need help and he'd miss the party. But he wasn't one to waste his trip, so Bainbridge made his own tour of Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli just to drive home the point. It helped that his flagship was the 74-gun USS Independence, the first American ship of the line to visit the Mediterranean. The United States Navy had come of age. I do have to wonder if Decatur and Bainbridge felt some kind of way sailing into Tripoli Harbor in 1815. It had been over a decade since Bainbridge had run aground on the Philadelphia, since Decatur had burned the same ship in that harbor, since Decatur's brother had died in action in that bay, since Bainbridge had been freed from captivity. It must have brought back memories of those desperate younger days. The 1815 Treaty was the most favorable any Western power had ever signed with Algiers, and signaled the beginning of the end for Barbary piracy in general. The death blow would be carried out by the British. See, the war with Napoleon was over, and the Royal Navy had virtually unchallenged dominion over the world's oceans. Free trade was the new name of the game, and Parliament had banned the slave trade in 1807. All this meant that for Great Britain, the Barbary states had outlived any usefulness they might have had. In 1816... A massive British fleet trolled down to Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli and forced them, at gunpoint, to basically cease all pirate activities forever. When Algiers resisted, on August 27, 1816, a British fleet blasted their defenses apart and forced the day to surrender. This action brought an end to almost three centuries of Barbary piracy. The Barbary Wars, though, were already fading from memory. And if you ask me... They kind of pretty much have faded from memory. In 1815, America had a new hero, Andrew Jackson, and was entering a new age. The United States looked to the West now, a new frontier, rather than to the Atlantic and the Old World. The Jacksonian age had new ideas, new heroes, new myths. The growing pains were over, and the lessons, good and bad, of the Barbary Wars were quickly forgotten. Its heroes were going even quicker. Stephen Decatur Jr. was celebrated as a hero, again, when he returned from his victorious expedition against Algiers in the Second Barbary War. It was to be his last hurrah. He was promoted away from his ships and placed behind a desk on the Board of Naval Commissioners. But Decatur hated being landbound. He hated offices, meetings, and paperwork. He complained in letters about this purgatory. What shall I do? We have no war, nor sign of a war, and I shall feel ashamed to die in my bed. But if anyone knew how to find a fight to die in, it was Stephen Decatur. A dispute with former naval officer James Barron, Samuel Barron's younger brother, blew up into a duel. On March 22, 1820, Decatur and Barron squared off at Bloddensburg, Maryland. William Bainbridge agreed to serve as Decatur's second the man who had lost the Philadelphia backing up the man who had burned it. The two men fired. Barron was hit in the hip, Decatur in the side. But Decatur's wound ended up being fatal. America's first great war hero, the man whose daring raid on the Philadelphia earned the praise of Horatio Nelson, who had maybe avenged his brother's death in Tripoli Harbor, led the Navy to victories against Britain and Algiers, the man who could make women faint just from his appearance and was beloved by peers, subordinates, and superiors alike, passed into history that evening. He was 41 years old. He had died as he lived, being a complete and total drama queen, and he wouldn't want it any other way. Hamet Karamanli and his wife and children struggled along on the pension that Congress had awarded them. But by 1811, they were on the run from Yusuf's assassins. They moved to Egypt, and there, they vanished from history. In 1832, a man presented himself to American diplomats in Alexandria, claiming to be Hamet's oldest son and asking for money. This is the last record of Hamet Karamanli and the fate of his family. Yusuf remained in power until 1835, when he was overthrown by the Ottoman Empire, But his descendants, surprisingly, had one more act to play in the story of the Barbary Wars. When the Intrepid had exploded in Preble's failed fireship attack on September 4, 1804, the Tripolitans had buried the bodies of its 13 crewmen in an unmarked grave. But in 1938, a local researcher found the location of the bodies and contacted American authorities with the news. In April 1949, an honor guard of American Marines and British Highlanders placed plaques above the burial site, each of which reads, Here lies an unknown American sailor, lost from the intrepid in Tripoli Harbor, 1804. One member of the procession was the mayor of Tripoli, Joseph Karamanli, Yusuf's descendant. After Eaton's expedition was complete, Johann Eugene Leitensdorfer did what he did best. He moved on. He ran off to Sicily, married a third woman while still married to his first two wives, abandoned that wife, and sailed to the United States in 1809, visited Eaton, became a public surveyor in Washington, D.C., lived inside the U.S. Capitol building as a bird catcher, got Congress to award him 320 acres in Missouri for his war service, married a fourth time to a different woman, and actually stayed with her this time, retired to St. Louis, had a bunch of kids, and died there in 1845 and he later had an opera made about his life. Shine on, you crazy diamond. America's last hero of the Barbary Wars, Presley O'Bannon, left the Marine Corps in 1807. To be honest, if some lunatic had dragged me across the desert with a bunch of mercenaries, I probably wouldn't re-enlist either. He moved to Kentucky and took part in state politics before passing away quietly in 1850 at age 74. He still had in his possession a sword, that he had allegedly been given by Hamet Karamanli as a way of thanking him for his service in the expedition. This sword ended up being the model for the Mameluke pattern sword still worn by Marine officers today. It is a constant reminder of the Marine Corps' first overseas action and the young Virginia lieutenant who had first raised the stars and stripes over the shores of Tripoli. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So, why are the Barbary Wars important? What makes these conflicts worth talking about? Well, they were critical to the history of the United States for quite a few reasons. By waging these wars, the very young country made a contribution towards establishing freedom of the seas, the notion that countries have the right to trade in international waters without fear of disturbance. The conflicts were also critical as the first real testing ground of the brand-spanking-new United States military. The energy and effort put into sending multiple squadrons of warships to fight across the Atlantic created a cadre of experienced officers and captains that molded and basically established the early United States Navy and Marine Corps. There were a lot of firsts for America in the Barbary Wars, like the first overseas conflict, the first hero of a foreign war, the first time the Stars and Stripes had been raised on an enemy shore. The U.S. Marines at Derna, of course, were the inspiration for the famous first line of the Marine hymn, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Maybe before the end of this podcast, I'll get to those halls of Montezuma. I wrote my master's thesis on it. It's pretty cool. It was a pivotal, vital event in the history of America. The Barbary Wars defined and shaped America's sense of patriotism, unity, and identity. Americans achieved not just freedom from foreign rule, but freedom from foreign threats. Not just freedom on the land, but freedom of the seas. Not just self-governance, but self-respect. It was, in more ways than one, a second war of independence. But for anyone looking for them, there were darker signs for America's future in the Barbary Wars. I pointed out how Thomas Jefferson stretched presidential powers to their limit when he prosecuted the war. He sent military forces overseas, without congressional approval in 1801, and in 1804 he approved a regime change operation against a sovereign foreign state, again without congressional approval or public knowledge. He justified these moves at the time out of necessity and realism, but that's the very same line every American president has used ever since when they do something shady. In this very early age of United States history, the executive branch was already overstepping the authority that the Constitution granted it, and the person doing it was a founding father himself, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. The line from the Barbary Wars to the Gulf of Tonkin and America's entry into Vietnam is faint, but it's there. Finally, there was a third troubling precedent set by the Barbary Wars, and that was how America treated its allies. And this is directly related to the price of peace. Just to recap, right? We saw how the Barbary states of North Africa conducted war as a negotiation. Last week and this week, we saw how the price of peace rose and fell based on military success, diplomatic conditions, and the pressure each side was under. America won the First Barbary War because William Eaton found an unconventional way to place pressure on the Bashaw of Tripoli because the naval pressure hadn't worked. He lowered the price of peace to a level that America was willing to pay. The United States won the Second Barbary War because the global situation had changed to the point that the U.S. Navy was able to dictate the price of peace through force. In both cases, peace was a commodity subject to the whims of the market. But it's important that when we look at the price of peace, we don't just ask how much. We ask who pays. And that's what I focused on more in today's episode. Ultimately, to gain peace in the First Barbary War, the United States was prepared to cut Hamid Karamanli and his family out of the deal. They paid at least part of the price for Lear's treaty with Tripoli, and the United States never really cared too much about what happened to them after the war was over. We don't even know their ultimate fates. This was a pattern that would be tragically repeated on a much larger scale throughout American history. How we tend to leave our allies hanging when they need us the most, because we get tired of overseas wars. We're perfectly willing to come in, recruit people to assist us, place them in harm's way and mess up their lives, but we're much more reluctant to take responsibility for it when the time comes. When the war is over, they become someone else's problem the price of peace is sometimes less important than who pays it. Henry Kissinger, someone whose blood ran colder than Thomas Jefferson's ever could, once remarked that, It may be dangerous to be America's enemy, but to be America's friend is fatal. America got out of the Barbary Wars pretty cheap. But for our former ally, the price of peace was very high indeed. And this set a pattern that has been repeated throughout America's history. It started with Hamid Karamanli, and it's continued to the Philippines, to World War I, to Vietnam, to Iraq and Afghanistan, the many places where we've been willing to leave our allies hanging when it suited us. I wrote most of this episode long before the recent events in Afghanistan, so I had to re-record this entire ending because it found a new relevance, it found a new importance. Look, sometimes wars have to end. Sometimes we have to leave, throw in the towel, when the war can't be won. But that doesn't mean we should abandon the people we made promises to, who helped us, who took us at our word. There are thousands of Comet Karamanlis out there who need our help, who relied on promises that we broke. Yes, I'm talking about the Afghans. We owe it to them, if we're not going to continue to occupy their country, and I don't think we should, to at least make sure they're safe to bring them here, to shelter them, because they put everything on the line based on our word, on our promises. They shouldn't be abandoned like we abandoned Hamit Karamali and his family 200 years ago. Because at the end of the day, there are some things that don't have a price. Some things aren't for sale. Maybe we don't have to let history repeat itself. Maybe it's up to us to change the pattern, to break the cycle that began in the days of the founding fathers to not just live up to their legacy, but maybe to be better. I think that a better future and a better character for our country are possible. And it's hard to put a price on that. Thanks a heck of a lot for listening to me today. I hope that you enjoyed this crazy romp through early American history. thank you also for your continued support of this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to read some of the heaps of stuff I've written about early American history, or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, you can go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you've got advice, I'd love to hear it. Also, pack your bags, because next week, we're going to be traveling a lot. World War I is over, and people are picking up the pieces. And Lord have mercy, there are so many pieces. We're going to look at the untold story of what Europe, America, and the world experienced After the Armistice. Join me next week on Unknown Soldiers.